thinking about our minor uh, inconvenience today. Uh, I've had the opportunity to take uh, multiple uh, mission trips to uh, Romania. And uh, the uh, main church that we've worked with there, uh, their church was destroyed uh, three different times by the communists. I mean, just totally destroyed. Uh, and on one of those occasions, the church was destroyed right as they were going into uh, the winter months. And they said it was the most brutal winter that uh, in uh, recorded history, you know, since recording weather, in terms of just uh, frigid temperatures and, uh, and snow. And every Sunday through those winter months, those people would meet on the church site where it had been destroyed for worship in that, that frigid, those frigid conditions. Now, you, now you'd say, why in the world? Would they, didn't they have homes that they could meet in? Yes, and they did. Uh, they did meet in homes and have worship, but at the same time, uh, they wanted to demonstrate to the communists, uh, you can't quell our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, they wanted to be able to uh, always uh, uh, make, that, make that statement uh, to them. And, uh, and that's sort of appropriate as uh, we uh, continue our study today of uh, uh, what Jesus looks for in a uh, church. I hope you've been here for the uh, previous two studies, uh, uh, or two sermons in this study. Uh, this is a study of Christ's messages to the seven churches found in chapters 2 and 3 of the uh, book of Revelation. Now, in this study, as you know, we're attempting to answer three fundamental questions. Uh, number one, what does Jesus look for in a church? Because really, isn't that the most important question? It's not what we look for, but what does He look for? Uh, what's important to Him? Because it's not about us, it's about Him, about honoring and glorifying Him. And then the second question is, well, does Jesus find what He's looking for in a church right here in our lives at Edgewood Baptist Church. And then the third question is, are we willing to give Jesus what he's looking for regardless of the changes that it may demand from our lives, uh, from our church? Now, we have previously looked at Christ's messages to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, and today we come to the third church, which was located in the city of Pergamum. Now go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2, and in just a moment we'll be reading verses 12 through 17, which is uh, the Lord's message uh, to this church in Pergamum. So uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses uh, two, uh, 12 through 17. So uh, just... Turn there, have it ready, but before we read uh, his message to the church, I want to tell you a little about, about the city of Pergamum, because this is very pertinent uh, to the study itself. Pergamum was about 100 miles north of Ephesus, with Smyrna right about halfway between. Uh, unlike uh, Smyrna and Pergamum, I mean, I'm sorry, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, which were port cities, as we saw, on the Aegean Sea, uh, 
Pergamum was not, but it was the capital, the capital of Asia Minor. Uh, Smyrna may have been the most beautiful city in Asia Minor, Minor, as we learned last week, but Pergamum, without question, was its greatest city. Uh, much of the city was built uh, on a large cone-shaped hill that rose a thousand feet uh, above the plain. It was a magnificent, impressive sight. I mean, it, 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 it looked as if this was, yes, a royal city and the seat of authority. Uh, Pergamum was a center of culture and learning, and it boasted a library that was second in the entire world, only to the library that existed in Alexandria. Uh, Pergamum was also the center for the worship of four of the main deities of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Athena, uh, the god of warfare. Asclepius, the god of healing. Dionysus, the god of fertility. And Zeus, who is considered the chief of all the gods. And each of these uh, pagan deities had uh, magnificent temples that were built for them uh, in uh, Pergamon uh, for their worship. And the temple of Zeus was uh, one of the seven wonders of the uh, ancient uh, world. Again, just a very, very impressive sight. But surpassing Pergamum's worship of these pagan deities was their devotion to the cult of emperor worship. Uh, Pergamum built the first temple in all of Asia Minor that was devoted to worshiping the Roman emperors. They built it in 29 BC. And at the time of the book of Revelation, there are actually three temples in Pergamum devoted to the worship of Caesar. And we saw last week in our study of Smyrna that uh, uh, in these cities uh, where these temples existed, it was required that all the citizens at least once a year, go into that temple. And they would have to take a little pinch of incense, place it in the altar, and as they did that, they would have to say, they would have to confess that Jesus, that, I'm sorry, that Caesar is the Lord God. That Caesar is the Savior and Lord of all mankind. And as we saw, it was the Christians' uh, refusal to do this uh, that brought such uh, horrific persecution against them. Uh, the Romans viewed this as an act of civil disobedience that could be punishable uh, by death. So uh, with that introduction to the city, follow along now in your Bibles as we read uh, the Lord's message to the church at Pergamum. Verse 12, and to the angel, again that's we believe referring to the pastor, to the pastor of the church in Pergamum wrote, Right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But, I have a few things against you, because you have there some 
who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So let's begin by looking at the uh, introduction uh, there in your uh, sermon notes. Uh, in the messages to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, we learn Jesus is looking for heartfelt worship first. We saw that in Ephesus, that Jesus be our first love in all things. But not only heartfelt worship, we learn from the church at Smyrna, he's also looking for faithfulness in suffering, which proves our love for him. Remember, uh, the church at Smyrna was under severe persecution. Uh, Jesus told them, uh, some of you are about to be thrown into prison. And there was no promise of deliverance. He just basically said, be faithful to death. Uh, and uh, so we saw in those first two letters, uh, the two things Jesus is looking for as much as anything else is heartfelt worship and faithfulness in suffering and adversity, which proves our love for him. Now, in his message to the church at Pergamum, we learn Jesus is looking for uncompromising obedience regardless the cost. So in his message to the church at Pergamum, we learn Jesus is looking for uncompromising obedience, regardless the cost. And of course, an obedience that's rooted in our love for Jesus, that he is our first love. And because he's our first love, there's a refusal to deny him, but to honor him and remain faithful to him again, regardless the price. Uh, look at those verses there that just... Uh, emphasize this truth in John 14 verse 15 Jesus said if you love me you will what you will keep or you will obey my commandments the apostle John in another of his writings first John chapter 5 verse 3 wrote this for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not what burdensome I was a witnessing to a young man just the other day and uh, I actually brought up this verse because he was uh, struggling with the idea that uh, Christianity is, uh, is legalistic. And I said, no, yes, there are principles and there are laws and there are commandments, but they're not burdensome because we view every one of his laws, every one of his truths, principles, and commandments for our benefit to protect us from harm and to provide us the truest happiness. Therefore, His commandments are not burdensome. They are a delight because we know He's only thinking of our well-being. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, you couldn't have a much clearer statement than this. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Bottom line, we don't need to make this complicated, true love 
True love will never compromise its devotion to the one loved. We've already seen in this study that the church is the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, he is always to be our first love, the one we value, the one we cherish more than anyone or anything else. And we are to remain faithful to him regardless the cost, even unto death. And this is why the Bible defines sin as an act of spiritual adultery, as an act of unfaithfulness. For a Christian to compromise his relationship with Christ is to kiss the devil. As we're going to see, there was much that Jesus could commend this church for in Pergamum. But sadly, there were some members in the church who were in a love affair with the devil, while the rest of the church, in the name of open-mindedness, in the name of tolerance, uh, were letting this compromise go and not dealing with it. And this is why Christ opened his message to the church at Pergamon by presenting himself, as you see in your notes, as Christ being the judge of compromise. Christ, the judge of compromise. And look at those two points underneath that. First, he establishes right from the beginning in this message to Pergamon that his word is the decisive authority. That's that blank. Christ's word is the decisive authority authority in all things. Revelation 2 verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. In Revelation 1 16, as part of the description of the risen and glorified Christ, we were told, and out of his mouth there comes a sharp two-edged sword. We see this same sharp two-edged sword in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns. And we're told it is with that sword that he slays, what? His enemies. He slays the nation to take over the throne here on earth. So the sharp two-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth represents very clearly God's word, which is to be the decisive authority in our lives and in our church. Now, in relationship to Edgewood Baptist Church, what does this mean? Well, it means that this is not Andy Merritt's church. This is not the elders' church. This is not the deacons' church. This is not the senior adults' church because they laid its foundation. This is not the youth's church, the young people's church, because they're the church's future. There is no church boss but one, and that is Jesus. And there's only one fundamental question to be asked. Is Christ's word the decisive authority right here? In our lives, in our church, in all that we are, in all that we do. And if not, Jesus would ask, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And this leads right to the second truth in your notes. Christ's word is the standard for judgment. Christ's word is the standard for judgment. Look at that uh, verse 16. We're going to come back to this. 
But uh, repent, therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make what? War against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking to the church here, not to the world. He's dealing with an issue of compromise that has crept up in that church. And he says, this needs to be dealt with. You either need to judge it as a church or I'm going to come and judge it and I will make war and I'll deal with this situation and I will correct this situation because this is my church, I bought it, it's my possession, my bride, and I'm going to do it. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is what? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And let me just emphasize, notice what Christ is interested in is the heart, the inner man. We can put a show on uh, for folks on the outside, but Jesus looks at the heart. That's where he wants to see an authentic love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, again, Christ's word is described as a what? Two-edged sword. Now listen. Surrender. Surrender to Christ's sword, and it becomes the instrument of your salvation, of your deliverance, of your growth. But you resist his sword, and it becomes the instrument of what? Judgment. Chastisement. Discipline. Christ's sword always delivers the committed but judges all compromisers. So Christ's message to the church in Pergamum begins by establishing Christ's word as the decisive authority and the standard for judgment by which all men will be held accountable. Next, Christ gives his commendation of the church at Pergamum. And there was much to commend this church about. And the first thing that he commends them for, as you see there in your notes, it was a church with staying power, with staying power. This is most impressive about this church, and I think you'll agree with me after you hear this. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Notice, Jesus said this church was dwelling where Satan's throne is. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, some Bible teachers identify Satan's throne with the temple of Zeus, which was actually considered the throne of Zeus. It was called that. And as mentioned earlier, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Again, just a magnificent, impressive sight. It was uh, on top of a hill that overlooked the city of, uh, of Pergamum. Others connected uh, to the worship of Asclepius, the god of healing, who was depicted as a snake, which of course is also the symbol of what? Our adversary, uh, the devil. Uh, some of you will love this. Snakes, and I'm talking about Many, 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 many snakes roamed freely in the temple of Asclepius. And people would literally come from all over the world who were suffering from various ailments or sicknesses 
And you know what they would do? They would lay on the temple floor, hoping that one of those slithering snakes would come by and touch them, and they believed if that happened, that they would be healed. Uh, during the reign of the emperor uh, Diocletian, Christian stone cutters were actually executed for refusing to carve an image of Asclepius. Uh, others relate the throne, Satan's throne uh, to Pergamum being the center, as we mentioned, for the emperor cult in Asia. Uh, the emperor, as I mentioned, was worshipped uh, as the supreme god. They viewed him as deity. Uh, they, he was literally called Lord and Savior. He was literally called the high priest. I mean, all the names that we would use to refer to Jesus was used to indicate uh, Caesar's deity or their belief that he was God. And this, of course, as we've already seen in our study, especially last week with Smyrna, posed the greatest threat to Christians. Uh, it was the Christians' refusal to worship the emperor, not the pagan gods like Zeus and Eclepius for which they were executed. So for all of these uh, reasons, for any of these reasons, Pergamum could be called Satan's throne. I don't know that I would just single out one. Let's just put them all together. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He was the old uh, Bible st uh, teacher that many of you uh, may still remember. You can still catch some of his uh, teachings on the uh, radio. He called Pergamon, this is a great name for Pergamon, he, call he called it Paganism Unlimited. That's how he described uh, Pergamon. So, now get the picture, because this is impressive. Here is this little church of Christ followers, not just in enemy territory, but where Satan has actually set up his headquarters. Now think about that. Except for the church in Pergamon, the entire city was controlled by the devil, filled with idolatry, immorality, demonic activity, and the greatest sport in Pergamon was the persecution of Christians. You think, you think things are bad in America, how would you have liked to have lived in Pergamon? Yet, right there in Pergamon, right there in this city, where Satan has set up his throne, this little church was commended for holding fast to his name. They remained faithful in their love for Christ and commitment to the truths of Christ. They did not retreat from the devil's attacks, but they were committed not to run, but to remain, actually remain in Pergamum, to stay there to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's obvious they truly believed Jesus when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Their attitude apparently was, hey, the greater the darkness, the greater the opportunity for our light to shine. So this truly was a church with amazing staying uh, power, where most would have run, would have looked for somewhere else to live. They were committed to remain there to be a witness. Second, it was a church that paid the price. 
Not only did they have staying power, but because they did hang in there to remain faithful, they were called upon to pay the price. Look at again the latter part of verse 13. talks about they did not deny my faith. Even in the days, notice of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, though Antipas is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, tradition tells us he was a church leader in the church at Pergamum. And because he refused to put that little pinch of incense on the altar and declare Caesar Lord God, he was executed. He was literally roasted to death inside a hollow brass idol that was shaped like a bull. He was willing to die rather than deny, he was, rather, he was willing to die rather than to deny Christ. And I love the fact, I love the fact that Antipas is called by Christ, I love this, he says what? My witness, my faithful one. And the reason I love that is because those same terms are used to describe Jesus in Revelation 1. Verse 5, in this glorious vision of the glorified Christ. In dying a martyr's death, he was Christ-like. Antipas illustrates that this little church, though sorely tested to give in, was willing to pay the price. Regardless of the cost, in order to be a faithful witness for Christ. And I need to add, Christ asked every believer to do the same. Every one of us are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him regardless of the price. It should be viewed an honor to suffer for Him. An honor to die. You know, I think of these soldiers. We have some here today. I mean, these soldiers train, they go on deployments, they get into war zones, they get into harm's way. They're not looking to die. But when they signed up, they know that they are what? Willing to die for their country. And when they make that ultimate sacrifice, we consider them what? Heroes. We're soldiers of Christ. Should we have at least the same commitment? If called upon, willing to die, and counted an honor, a privilege to do so? The church of Pergamum was commended for remaining faithful to Christ, living right in the shadow of Satan's headquarters, where opposition to the Christian faith was the greatest. Yet, all was not well with the church. Look now in your notes at Christ's criticism of the church. Number one, it was a church tolerant of false teaching. It was a church tolerant of false teaching. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some, again, it, apparently it was, it was a, uh, uh, not the majority of the church, but there was a small group within the church. He says, some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And then he says in verse 15, thus you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Again, while the majority of the church was faithful, again, there were some members who had embraced false teaching, and that false teaching is identified as uh, the teaching of Balaam, which is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was the New Testament version of the exact same heresy. Now, don't have time to go into great detail, uh, but you can easily grasp what was at the heart of the error in this teaching. Balaam was a prophet, if you're familiar with the story. He was hired by king of Moab. His name was King Balaam. And he was hired by the king, of Moab, the king of Moab to curse God's people, to curse the Israelites. But God, interestingly enough, it's somewhat of a humorous story, every time Balaam tries to curse God's people, and he's doing this for money, God turns every one of his cursings into blessings for his people. Well, Balak's getting a little upset. I'm not getting my money's worth here. But he does get his money's worth. Because Balaam devises a scheme. And he shows the king of Moab how to use the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men by inviting them to their pagan feast and rituals and then leading the men into idolatry and immorality. And sadly, the plan was successful. To the point where God had to intervene, if you're familiar with the story. And he severely chastened those who compromised their faith, executing 24,000 men. Many of them leaders. Balaam, therefore, became, I guess you could say, the prototype of all false teachers who lead believers into compromise and corruption. Uh, Peter mentions this in, uh, in 2 Peter. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, in a similar way, very similar error, uh, just the New Testament version, it abused the teaching of Christian liberty. They taught that a believer had the freedom to accommodate their faith and conduct to more easily live in the society where they were found. I mean, what's the problem with participating in a few pagan feasts and orgies? As long as we maintain our belief in Jesus. I mean, what, what's the harm of once a year? I mean, it only takes seconds. Walk into the temple, take a little pinch of incense, put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, what's the problem with that as long as I keep worshiping Jesus? I mean, what good is it being so narrow and rigid? I mean, look where God Antipas. You want to be dead like he was or is? See, by being a little more lax, by being a little more accommodating to the culture in which we live, hey, man, we, we can escape needless persecution. We don't have to put our families through this. We don't have to put our children through this. We, we can live decent lives, prosperous lives. And then we can still be a witness for Jesus. Now, this was a grave, grave problem in the church at Pergamum. Again, it was just a, a small number. 
that had embraced this. But that was not just the problem. It was the fact that the faithful members of the church were tolerating this. And we don't know what their thinking was. It probably was something like they were thinking, well, we need to demonstrate a love for our brothers and sisters that it's greater than our differences. You know, we, we, we don't agree with them, but, but, you know, we need to stay open-minded. We need to be tolerant of this. But they needed to realize what happens when you do not deal quickly and thoroughly with false teaching. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Paul wrote, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. To put it in very simple terms, I think that we can understand, to fail to eradicate false teaching from the body of Christ would be like ignoring a serious infection in our physical bodies. What's going to happen? The infection is only going to spread. And as it spreads, it's going to maim the body and possibly what? Bring death to the body. Look at the second criticism of the church which goes hand in hand with the first. You cannot divide the two. It was a church tolerant of moral compromise. Revelation 2.14 again, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Listen, the reason a church cannot allow itself to tolerate false teaching is that false teaching always, always, without exception, leads to unholy living. Unholy living that will dishonor Christ and will bring reproach on His name. Notice what Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote to you, pretty strong statement right here, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Notice, he didn't say those that are outside the church. He says, if you've got someone who's claiming to be a Christ follower, who's claiming to be your brother in the Lord, and this person is an immoral person, or he's covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, you're not even to eat with such a one. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And see, this is the mistake that was being made in the church of Pergamum. It was a church that was being faithful in the midst of the most difficult of situations. But there was this small handful of people that were embracing this false teaching that, that allowed them to abuse their liberty, to compromise their faith for the motivation to avoid suffering. They didn't want to pay the price. They didn't want to count the cost. What was demanded of following Jesus in the society in which they lived. And that compromise led them down a road of not just embracing that false teaching, but unholy living, where they fell into immorality, where they began to develop a very, uh, tried to synchronize their Christianity with some of these pagan deities uh, so that they uh, could do well in their society. Now look at the correction of the problem. Christ only gave them two options. This is interesting. 
And here they are. Here are the two options. You know, both down in your notes. He says either repent or war. That's it. That's your two options. You repent. Turn around from this. Come back to me as your first. Or I'm coming with war. Notice verse 16. Repent therefore or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the compromisers with the sword of my mouth. Antipas may have felt the sword of Rome, but the compromisers in the church were about to feel the sword of Christ if they did not repent. So he was giving them the opportunity. He said, you have the opportunity right now to do what is right to turn from this compromise, to turn from this false teaching, to return from your whole, and to be as Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one, regardless the cost, or else it's war. And remember what God did in the days of Balaam when he executed that judgment to clean house. Now notice the conqueror's reward as we close. Beautiful reward that he promises to the faithful. It says, He who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I think it's very obvious the hidden manna is a promise of spiritual nourishment in his word. He's saying if you will repent, if you'll turn to be my faithful witness, my faithful one, me as your first love, and to, and to prove that love by being faithful even in suffering, I will nourish you. I'll take you into an intimacy with me that very few will know. And you'll be strengthened by me, upheld by me. The white stone, it, there's a lot of possible things that this could be alluding to. I'll give you one that probably I lean toward, but I don't, I don't know. It, 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 it could be understood in the light of the Roman custom of awarding, they literally awarded white stones to victors in athletic contests. And they would give them these white stones and they would inscribe the athlete's name on the stone. And that stone then became their ticket to a special awards banquet where they would be honored. And so Jesus is probably saying, remain faithful to me and I'll give you that victor's stone that will inscribe on it your name, and notice a new name. We don't know what that new name is. He says only the person who receives it knows it. But bottom line, Christ is saying what? I'll change your, uh, you from being faithless to being what? Faithful. I'll change you from being impure to be pure. And so he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this white stone as a victor inscribed with your new name that depicts your relationship with me that is eternal and never ending. And that'll be your entrance into a glorious eternal celebration 
and to know all the rewards and the blessings of heaven. So the lesson for us today is no compromise. That's it right there. It's not to compromise our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's much that we can learn from Pergamum about remaining faithful in the most difficult of circumstances and counting it an honor to suffer for Jesus, but we always have to be on guard against false teaching, against uh, unholy living that would get us to the place where we're kissing the devil and where we are unfaithful to Christ and where we uh, hit that tough spot where there's only one or two possible courses of action, repent or war. So where are you today? You know because I believe God's spirit is here and he convicts. And I believe he puts fingers on things. And because Christ loves you, because Christ only wants to give you that hidden manna, that white stone, he's saying repent. But he says if you don't repent, you're not going to get away with this. You can't run from me. I'll track you down. And I will deal with this. And it won't be pleasant. But praise God, even his chastisement and his discipline, although not pleasant, in the end reaps what? A harvest of righteousness and holiness. Father, thank you for this uh, marvelous lesson today uh, on the church at uh, Pergamum. Uh, again, so much he was able to commend this wonderful church for. And Lord, we want to follow their example. That in our culture, that you could look at us and say, yes, they have staying power. They're holding fast to my name. And yes, they're willing to do that and pay the price, regardless of the cost. But Lord, we also see the subtle dangers of, uh, of compromise. Um, it's very obvious that Satan could not intimidate this church by being a roaring lion. But he did affect the church by being a deceiving serpent. And so, Lord, let us not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, that there are many avenues of attack that he takes. And, Lord, may, again, you give us the grace to forever remain faithful to you, uh, to never compromise our faith, but to truly be, as Antipas, that faithful one, that faithful witness to our Lord and Savior Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we have our invitation today, I'll ask uh, Andy to come back up. And uh, again, uh, as I often tell you, uh, listening to a message has never changed the first person. It's what you do with the message. It's acting on the message. Uh, it's a uh, if you need to, repent. It's that change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's turning from the compromise to kiss Jesus, to remain faithful to him, to love and honor him. And I would urge you to do that. If you're here and you do not know him, oh, I invite you to him. The one who loved you, the one who died for you, the one who rose again, the one who's worthy of your love, worthy of your life, 
the one that it would be an honor to live for and an honor to die for, knowing that you have an eternal home in heaven and a place with him. So you just respond to whatever God is uh, telling you to do. I'll be here if there's anyone that has a public decision, uh, make a public profession of faith, wants to unite with the church, or anything else. So stand as Andy comes to lead us in this final song.